I want to begin with a simple statement tonight. The easiest thing to do is nothing. The easiest thing to do is nothing. You see a need and the easiest thing to do is to just to disregard it, to ignore it, to pass by on the other side. Of course, you recognize that language as from the parable of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite, the two likely uh, that should have been likely to, to help this man who'd been beaten and left for dead simply pass by on the other side. But that's the easy thing to do. Don't get involved. Just keep going. But yet, when others see a need, they do respond. They do whatever they can to help. And the question I want to pose for us tonight is, what makes the difference in those two scenarios? What's the difference between those who, when they see a need, they try to disregard it and pass by, don't get involved? When others, even though it may require something of them, time, money, effort, they do respond. And some respond, as we'll see, in a very powerful way. But what makes the difference? Well, I want us to see this difference in an Old Testament character. Tucker and I have been preaching some in the Old Testament, and we decided we'd love to do a textual study with you for a few Sunday nights. And so we're studying the book of Nehemiah. Nehemiah. And I propose to you that Nehemiah was one who saw a need, and, and we'll see how he, he responded. And so we'll be in chapter 1 tonight in the first 11 verses. But before we get into the text, I want us to, I think it's always helpful to look at a text in its historical context. So I want to ask you to bear with me a moment while I give you a, a quick overview of some of the history of, of Israel. Judah, because of Judah's rebellion against God, uh, just as Jeremiah the prophet had warned them and even prophesied, because of their idolatry, because of their rebellion against God, they had been told, you will be carried away into Babylonian captivity for 70 years. There were three waves of deportation. The first one here, the dates listed 606 B.C., uh, 597 B.C., and then Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon came and just destroyed Jerusalem and carried back most of the remaining people uh, of Judah back to Babylon, leaving probably some of the poor uh, to behind. Chronicles, Second Chronicles, uh, tells us some about what happened. So let me read with you from 2 Chronicles chapter 36, verse 18. And this is what happened when King Nebuchadnezzar came and just ransacked Jerusalem. All the articles from the house of God, great and small, the treasures of the house of the Lord, and the treasures of the king and of his leaders, all these he took to Babylon. Then they burned the house of God, broke down the wall of Jerusalem, burned all its palaces with fire, and destroyed all its precious possessions. Take note of that. Take note of how Nebuchadnezzar leaves Jerusalem. Verse 20. And those who escaped from the sword, he carried away to Babylon, where they became servants to him and, to, and his sons until the rule of the kingdom of Persia. Persia would overtake Babylon years later. But Jeremiah had also prophesied that not, 
Not only would the people of Judah be carried away into Babylonian captivity, but that God would bring them back after 70 years. And so we find, as we keep reading in 2 Chronicles chapter 36, the fulfillment of that prophecy. In the first year, this is verse 22, of of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now Persia is in power. And the Persians were uh, not as... Well, they, they allowed peoples to go back, and we'll see that in just a moment. The king of Persia, in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled. The Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing, saying, verse 23, Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth the Lord God of heaven has given me. And he has commanded me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Who is among you of all his people? May the Lord his God be with him and let him go up. The return that, of which Cyrus is now decreeing and was prophesied by Jeremiah was a fulfillment of this promise that we mentioned. In fact, Jeremiah 29, verse 10, thus says the Lord, After 70 years are completed at Babylon, I will visit you and perform my good word toward you and cause you to return to this place. So this has transpired over several years, but yet we see the word of the Lord is true and, and, his, and his promises are being kept. So just as there were three waves of deportation to Babylon, There are three waves of of return. The first one occurs under Zerubbabel, and one of Zerubbabel's primary intentions, purposes, was to rebuild the temple. So imagine um, the Jews have been in Babylonian captivity, serving, then under the Persians, and now they're being allowed to go back home. But remember how Nebuchadnezzar left the city. And most of Judah was like that. So they're having to rebuild. And they begin with the temple. Uh, Building the temple is halted for a while. Uh, Haggai and Zechariah prophesied during this time. The building is uh, begun again and finally uh, completed. A second wave returns under Ezra in 457 B.C. Ezra's emphasis is a spiritual revival. We'll also see that in the book of Nehemiah as well. But then in 444, Nehemiah leads another group of of Jews back to Jerusalem. And his purpose, as is uh, clearly evident in in the book of Nehemiah in the first six chapters, is his, his goal is to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. That's where it's headed But notice this statement from a study Bible that I've consulted. Nehemiah, contemporary of Ezra and cupbearer to the king in the Persian palace, leads the third and last return to Jerusalem after the Babylonian exile. His concern for the welfare of Jerusalem and its inhabitants prompts him to take bold action. So there you have it. Again, we're exploring the question, the easiest thing to do when you see a need is to do nothing, to ignore it. But yet there are some who, who when they see a need, they respond to it. And the question is, 
Why did Nehemiah uh, respond in the way that he did? And we'll see the sacrifices that he made in order to do so. Well, this statement from the New Open Bible, the Study Bible, states his, his concern for the welfare of Jerusalem and its inhabitants. It's concern for his fellow Jews. But let's get into the text itself and watch how Nehemiah learns about the condition of the people in Jerusalem. Uh, after all, two waves of Jews have returned, and he gets a report about their well-being. Nehemiah 1, verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. It came to pass in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Shushan, or Susa, the capital, that Hanani, one of my brethren, came with men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who had escaped, that is, those who had returned, who had survived the captivity, and concerning Jerusalem. So he inquires from Hanani, um, what's the condition of the people there? Verse 3. They said to me, the survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great distress and reproach. The wall of Jerusalem is also broken down and its gates are burned with fire. So it was when I heard these words, here's Nehemiah's, Nehemiah's response, that I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. So his initial reaction He's heartbroken. We already see in him he cares about his people and even especially the condition of the people that even fulfilling prophecy have been able to return home. But when they've returned home, they, their surroundings are in, in disarray. And so he's, he's sad, he weeps, he mourns, and he's fasting and praying. Had it stopped there, had the record stopped there, it would have just been confirmation that the easiest thing to do is nothing. Nehemiah could have elicited that response. He could have felt badly. He could have said, well, I'm going to be praying hard about this situation. And it obviously impacted him emotionally. But he could have stopped there. But he didn't. So look at Nehemiah for a moment. Nothing is known about Nehemiah outside the book of the Bible that bears his name. He, was, he likely had godly parents. Uh, he was probably born while in captivity, in Babylonian captivity. And he's likely reared as a faithful believer in the God of his, of his fathers. He appears first in the court of Artaxerxes I, also called Longimanus, who was the king of Persia from 464 to 424 B.C. At the end of chapter 1, we see he has a position under this king, Artaxerxes I. He is the king's cupbearer. This was a very responsible position. If you look at it even at face value, cupbearer to the king, he's the one who's the the food and drink taster. He's the one, I'm going to give you a preview of chapter 2. He's the one you don't want looking like he's feeling badly if he's serving in that position for you. Because he would make sure not only that it was palatable, but that there was no poison. It was a very trusted position. 
And many who served in this position would also have the ear of the king and be able and was even looked to often as a, a type of counselor in that position. So he's in that especially trustworthy position by the providence of God at a crucial time. That's some about Nehemiah. We'll learn more about him in his response. But consider the need. Look at verse 3 with me again. The survivors who are left from the captivity in the province are there in great, great distress. Great distress. Great trouble. And great reproach. Can you imagine uh, enemies of the Jews when they would see that the Persian king had allowed them to return back home only to find Jerusalem just, just leveled? At this point, the, the temple is, has at least begun being rebuilt, but still so much of the city is, is destroyed. And can't you imagine how enemies of the Jews would say, some God you serve... A kind king lets you return home, but look what God had waiting for you. And so they're under reproach. They're criticized, slandered by their enemies. And the walls of Jerusalem are broken down, including its gates. And as you recall, in that day and time, gates and walls were a main source of protection for the city. So they're left defenseless. And this is what evokes that response from Nehemiah. He is heartbroken over the condition of his people back in the homeland. So watch how Nehemiah responds uh, to the need that he's been made aware of. First he wept, as we saw in verse 4. When I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for many days. I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven. He could have said, well, I'm, I'm doing well in my position, and I sure feel badly for him. But you see, this really hit him hard. And so his, the depth of his uh, emotions indicate just how much he cares. He loves his people. His heart is touched with their calamity. Uh, he has a huge heart of compassion. But he doesn't just weep and mourn about it. He prayed. And notice with me as we study through this book how often Nehemiah prays. And that speaks to his dependence, his reliance upon God. Verse 5, and I said, I pray, Lord God of heaven, O great and awesome God, you who keep your covenant and mercy with those who love you and observe your commandments. Please let your ear be attentive and your eyes open that you may hear the prayer of your servant, which I pray before you now, day and night, for the children of Israel, your servants, and confess the sins of the children of Israel, which we have sinned against you. And isn't that a marvelous response? He's been told his people are in reproach and in distress, and he's sorry for them. But one of his initial responses is he goes to God on their behalf. What an appropriate response. And in this prayer, you see already in, in verse 6, he's confessing on behalf of his people. 
he confesses, he even includes himself. Watch this in the latter part of verse 6. Both my father's house and I have sinned. Notice the I and we here. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, nor the ordinances which you commanded your servant Moses. You see, that's the reason why they had gone into Babylonian captivity in the first place, because of their disobedience. And so Nehemiah is not disregarding that. In fact, he's confessing it. Yes, God, we understand, I understand that it's because of our sin that we were carried into captivity. And I am a sinner as well. He's including himself. And it says a lot about Nehemiah, how he fully identifies with his people even when they've messed up in the sight of God. Verses 8 and 9 are compelling. Watch this. Remember, I pray, the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful... I will scatter you among the nations. That's from Leviticus 26, verse 33. That that promise had been realized in Babylonian captivity. But watch the next verse. God had said through Moses, But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though some of you were cast out to the farthest part of the heavens, yet I will gather them from there and bring them to the place which I have chosen as a dwelling for my name. That is from Deuteronomy 30, chapter 30. So Moses, before Israel crossed over the Jordan River into the promised land, had been been told these things. If you disobey God, you're going to be carried away by a foreign power. But if you return to Him, God will bring you home. Nehemiah was a Bible student, wasn't he? And so with all that in his mind, and and he's received the report, his people are suffering, that bothers him immensely, and he's praying to God about it, and he's even almost reminding God or just confessing to God he knows what God had said through Moses, that if they disobeyed him, this would happen, but if they turned back to him, he would bless them. So verses 10 and 11. Now these are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, I pray, please let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant and to the prayer of your servants who desire to fear your name. And let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. I want you to underscore that. Let your servant prosper this day, I pray, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Of whom is Nehemiah speaking? He's about to talk to some man, grant that I may have success and mercy in the sight of this man. And then it says, I was the king's cupbearer. There's the clue. This man, he's making reference to king, King Artaxerxes I. Not only has Nehemiah, we deduce, been praying about this situation, but he's been planning. Based upon what God had already told 
the, the people of Israel through his word, even through Moses, years before. If you return to me, I'll bring you home. So he is claiming that promise. God, you have told us if we return to you, we, you will bring us back home. And, and two waves of, of your people have returned. And he's planning now. He wants to do something. He's one of those who, who isn't content just to feel badly about a situation. He wants to be a part of the solution. So he, as you see, he has confessed that he had been part of the problem. But now he wants to be part of the solution. Nehemiah has a plan in mind. And he's even, and part of that plan is speaking to the king of Persia. And he's asking God, grant that I may find mercy in the sight of this man. So the easiest thing is to do nothing. To pass by, to ignore, to feel with, but not do anything about. But some people, when they see a need, respond and seek to do something about it. And what's the difference? I believe the difference in Nehemiah was that he cared. He cared. And he cared enough to get involved. I want to share with you a quote from one of my favorite Bible students. Nehemiah could probably have lived out his life in the luxury and security of the court of the most powerful nation on the face of the earth in his day. But he left everything to, an attempt, to attempt an impossible task of helping a group of people he had never seen, had never met, all because he felt he was part of a great people, the people of God Almighty. Would to God that all members of God's people today had that same love for the church for which Jesus, God's Son, died. My favorite Bible student, one of my favorite Bible students is Glenn Sargent. But you see, Nehemiah could have said, I feel badly for that situation. But you know, the king, as a king cup, king's cupbearer, he ate well, didn't he? He had a great position, a position, no doubt, of luxury. And could have just been content to, you know, uh, I sure hope they get what they need, but I'm just going to enjoy myself here. Maybe I can do some good on this end. But that's not the attitude that Nehemiah had. As we study the book of Nehemiah and make application, and I think there's so much in this book that is applicable. The theme that I propose is let us rise up and build. And no, we're not building a wall. We're not building a church building. But we've been called to build up the church, God's people. And the way that that's accomplished is by bringing others to Jesus, by, te by sharing the good news with those around us, but also by encouraging fellow Christians. There's the need before us. That's the call of God for His people to build up the kingdom, to build up the church. The easiest thing is to do nothing. But then there are some who respond to that need. 
And, and why do they do that? In Nehemiah's case, and I pray that in our case, it's because we care. We care. We care about what God has said. We care about those who need to hear, those who are lost, who need, need, need to know the good news of Jesus. And we care about our brothers and sisters in Christ, just like Nehemiah cared for his, his people who are many miles away from him. Wouldn't it have been easier for the Samaritan to just pass by on the other side like the priest and the Levite? You see, serving God by serving others can be messy business. It was messy in Nehemiah's day. I'll remind you about a Sunday school class teacher teaching her children about the parable of the Good Samaritan. And they went through all the details and, and she thought, well, I'm going to, to see if this has made an impression on them. And so she, she asked the class, what, what they would do if they saw someone on the side of the road beaten and all bloody, bloodied up. One little girl quietly replied, honestly, she said, I think I'd throw up. <laughs> of course, the answer was to respond to that need. What is it that made the Good Samaritan in Jesus' story be willing to cross the road and go to the man who'd been beaten and left for dead. Not only just crossing a road, but crossing a cultural divide, most likely to respond to this man's need. Jesus told this story to illustrate what it meant to be a neighbor. He cared, and he cared enough to get involved. As we study Nehemiah, let this truth be underscored that Christians care. Christians care. And that's all because Jesus cares for you and for me. He cared enough when he saw our need that he was obedient to the Heavenly Father and responded in person and went to the cross on our behalf and paid the price for our sins. At such great cost, he, the easiest thing would be to do nothing, but he gave himself uh, for our salvation. And when we follow Jesus, we're going to care, to care enough about what God has instructed us to do, something that we need to be building continually, building up the kingdom. And we, we do it because we care. If tonight you're subject to the invitation of Jesus, if you're ready to obey the gospel, or if you need the prayers of this church family, we'd love to pray with you. And won't you come right now as we stand and sing. Watching for 